We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today, Nick Fielding. Nick Fielding is a journalist and author. He has worked for the Sunday Times, the Mail on Sunday, and the Independent. At the Mail on Sunday, he broke the story of the renegade MI5 officer, David Shaler. And for the Sunday Times, he covered the story of Richard Tomlinson, an MI6 whistleblower. Fielding is also the author of the introduction to Tomlinson's book, The Big Breach. He was launch editor for the online magazine, China Outlook, and he writes the Circling the Lion's Den blog about Afghanistan. He is the author, together with Yosri Fuda, of Masterminds of Terror, which contains the only interviews ever given by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his co-conspiracy, Ramzi bin Alshib, to which we will be the basis of our interview today. Welcome to the show, Nick Fielding. Pleasure to meet you, Adam, and uh, delighted to be here. Sure. Well, when did you first become employed with the British press? I, I've been a professional reporter all my life. I trained uh, immediately after university and I worked pretty much on, uh, on magazines and as a freelance for a number of years. And then around about 19, late 80s, early 90s, I began working in Fleet Street as a reporter for the independent newspaper. Uh, where I covered the, the whole story of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, and its collapse. Amazing story at the time. And I moved on from there to uh, the Mail on Sunday, where I was uh, eventually became chief investigative reporter, broke a whole number of stories there. And I moved on from there to the Sunday Times, where I was senior reporter. And um, I reported a lot on 9-11 and various other issues there. We had a lot of, a lot of big hits also at the Sunday Times. Um, I left the Sunday Times um, sometime in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's quite difficult working, I think, for um, um, publications which have got uh, a very clear political bias. Uh, and Murdoch, I don't like Murdoch. I don't like Murdoch's uh, press very much. And I was much happier working as um, an independent. And since then, I've worked mostly, I worked a lot in Pakistan, even Afghanistan. And in more recent years, I've concentrated on Central Asia. I now write primarily, I write books about Central Asia. And I travel extensively in Central Asia. So um, that's, that's roughly my background. Just a follow-up to that question. Uh, you say you did a report on the BCCI Bank. What did that report show? Well, I, I, I reported on BCCI and the collapse of that bank for more than two years. And I broke a whole number of exclusives. I, it was me that first brought the whole issue of Capcom, the secret kind of intelligence agency controlled organization behind uh, BCCI to light. And um, 
I uh, broke many of the many of the stories. I went to Pakistan. I tracked down various former bank officials and doorstepped them at home in Ralpindi and Islamabad and places like that, um, and showed what just what a, um, a corrupt bank this was. A, its uh, its senior staff were highly corrupt, but also they managed to corrupt a large number of people through the way in which they're able to distribute funds, um, give people soft loans, and this is where they operated. They operated right out in the open. Um, I'll lend you uh, 10 million and you pay me back someday. It was kind of a bit like that. That's how that bank worked. It was a very, very, um, uh, it was also, I think, I think we can say now pretty safely, it was operating within the curtilage of the of various intelligence agencies, not least the Saudi intelligence agency, probably American agents, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, I think that BCCI was the bank that financed the West's response to Afghanistan. That's what it was used for effectively to uh, organize the transport of arms and munitions to, um, to the Mujahideen who were fighting and to paying off all the various people that needed to be paid off uh, around the world. So yeah, a filthy corrupt bank and um, extraordinary, extraordinary times. It's almost forgotten now, but it was a massive story at the time. Yes, it was. I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with BCCI Bank and Operation Cyclone, which was the CIA operation in Afghanistan with yeah. Mujahideen. Um, who is David Shaler and what did your investigation uncover about him? Well, um, I was first approached by um, Shaler, um, well, via, via a third party, as it happens, um, probably in 1996. And I was asked to go to a meeting in central London um, in a public place and was introduced to somebody who told me that they were a serving intelligence officer. I mean, that was uh, really, I mean, it's, it's almost the dream of any uh, journalist to, to be given sort of uh, access to a person of that standing. Um, very, very seldom happens. And this person told me that they um, had been working at five, MI5 for a number of years and they were very unhappy and they had a number of um, stories which they wanted to uh, publicize. I was actually extremely cautious initially because, um, you know, everybody and their dog pretends that they want to be an, they, they're an intelligence officer and they've done this and that and the other. And so, you know, one has to be extremely cautious. Um, and the first thing I had to do effectively was due diligence to make sure that what was in front of me was what was what I thought was in front of me. In other words, that he was who he said he was and that what he was that he was also not using me for an intelligence operation. You know, that's the other thing that one has to worry about. Um, you know, am I being fed stuff in order to make a particular point? Um, so I, I was very, very cautious on that particular point as well, because, um, you know, I, I, I think I thought that that was a possibility. And eventually I was able to work out that that was not the case. This was somebody with a genuine grievance, whether whether the grievance was genuine or not, I don't know, but he genuinely felt a grievance and he was willing to um, say a lot and also, uh, you know, in effect, to put his own career well, his career, as soon as we published, of course, was going to be over. So he decided to get out. And uh, in fact, the only way that we could really make that work is to get him out of the out of the UK prior to publication, because um, he would have been immediately arrested and possibly quite a number of others, myself included, would have been arrested. So um, we got him out of the UK. We hid him uh, abroad in, in uh, France for an, a number of well, almost two years. 
until he was eventually, and we ran our stories and the stories were quite dramatic um, in that, you know, he made the point that MI5 had been collecting intelligence on a whole number of people that, you know, were a waste of time, you know, like punk groups, like the Sex Pistols. And so, I mean, a lot of it was banal almost, absolutely banal, but nonetheless significant in the sense of why on earth is, you know, a major intelligence agency in the late 20th century collecting information about pop stars um, as if they were a threat to society. And so this was important on some level. He also revealed that um, MI5 kept files on a number of senior government officials at the time, uh, senior government ministers. I mean, I'm talking about, um, um, well, Blair, of course, um, Mandelson, uh, Jack Straw, the Home Secretary, a whole number of um, people. And he revealed that there were files on that. He also revealed, for example, that there were a number of mess-ups um, uh, in relation to, he'd been on the desk in Northern Ireland for a time, and therefore he knew something about uh, British operations in Northern Ireland in relation to the IRA. And he revealed that there, a, lot, a, lot of, a number of those operations had gone badly wrong, and that had not been in the public domain previously. They'd gone badly wrong in that people had been, who were being followed had been lost, and they'd gone on to do things which they should have been stopped from doing, et cetera, et cetera. So, there was a, certainly a large public interest element in, all, in, in a lot of these stories. I won't say in everything, but in a lot of these stories. And that was our criteria. I mean, in fact, I mean, Shayla provided very serious information that we could not possibly publish because it was not in the public interest, if I could say that to you. Um, these are things which, had we revealed, people could have suffered. And I mean, uh, maybe been killed by by a terrorist group or somebody else who, who could have possibly worked out how certain information had got into the hands of the intelligence services. So we had to be extremely cautious. Um, and we were, we were very, very cautious in terms of um, uh, what we decided to publish. Um, we, my bosses didn't believe me actually when I first went to them and told them who I, that I had somebody like this. They didn't believe me. And it took me a year to convince them to get stuff into the paper. And all that time I had to keep Shayla warm, if you like, um, yeah. keep him cooperative and happy with the circumstances and guarantee his safety, et cetera, et cetera, all a whole raft of measures that had to be put in place. So this was a massive, massive operation in the end. And, um, you know, we, 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 got our, we got our front page, uh, we, got our, well, we got our first front page um, on sort of Shayla's revelations, the second front page was knocked off the front of the paper by the death of Diana, actually. And, uh, you know, at midnight, we had to scrap the front pages. We got one edition away, I think, on a Saturday night uh, for a Sunday newspaper. And then she died around midnight in Paris. And then the whole paper was re rewritten. So it was kind of, it was a bit stop and start. But initially, eventually we got it out. I mean, there was pandemonium. You cannot, well, maybe you can imagine, but it was pandemonium. Everybody in the world wanted access to Shayla wanted to know what he was saying, wanted to get to him, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the government was involved. Um, the government were threatening our newspaper with um, injunctions. In fact, we ran a blank page. We ran a blank page after we were given an injunction. And I remember my editor at the time standing in front of the newsroom and saying to the whole newsroom, um, <laughs> shouting actually i've wasted my entire life to be able to run a page like this <laughs> so i mean it was dramatic days and of course you can imagine for a journalist like me uh, any journalist i think this would be 
extraordinary events. Um, so, uh, you know, that rumbled on for a number of years. I was with Shaler in Paris when he was arrested by the French uh, intelligence services on behalf of the British. He was put into La Santé prison in France. I was with him when he was released from Santé and uh, when he came back to England and so on. And um, after that, I think sometime after that, uh, we parted our ways. Um, he went his own way. Uh, he, he and Annie at the time, his girlfriend, Annie Machon, who'd also been a serving intelligence officer. Um, and uh, <clears throat> gradually, I think, uh, you know, in my view, they went out onto some kind of very strange limb in that um, they began more and more to become more and more closely involved with the 9-11 conspiracy theories. And they began to speak um, initially in the UK, of course, but then more and more widely, certainly in Europe. I don't, I'm not sure if they ever went to the States, but they, they certainly traveled extensively promoting this idea that there was a conspiracy. And <clears throat> because Shayla was a serving intelligence officer, and he'd also, he had made the, one of the revelations he'd made, which we had some evidence for, um, was that MI6 had been involved, for, for example, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to kill Gaddafi. They had, um, they had um, provided uh, training and possibly equipment to the Libyan Islamic fighting groups, one of the jihadist organizations operating in Libya, in order to kill Gaddafi. And we took a long time trying to stand that, that story. So <clears throat> um, Shayla had some genuine stories, which were his. When it came to 9-11, which obviously happens a long time after he's out of the intelligence services, um, uh, four years, at least four years after he'd left. However, um, if you introduce somebody uh, to a crowd as this is... Mr. So-and-so, former intelligence officer who revealed this, that, and the other, a lot of the audience are gonna say, well, I believe him, uh, simply because that's, you know, he's got, he's got a background and he's got a, a proven track record. Um, no matter what he may say, uh, you know, I've seen a dog with four heads. Well, you know, your, your, your kind of instinct tells you that's possibly wrong, but some people is gonna, are gonna believe that because they're gonna say, well, he knows stuff that we don't know because he's been on the inside track. You know, he's, he's worked for one of these secret organizations that we all fear and loathe and whatever. And therefore he really knows the way in which the world works. And a lot of conspiracy theorists, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure your audience knows, um, live in a very strange world. You know, they live in a world where there, there are no facts tacking them to the ground. Everything is free floating. Nothing is based on uh, um, cause and effect or anything. It's just floating information which may or may not be true and doesn't necessarily relate to anything else and if you live in that kind of world you can make statements about what's happening and um, you're not particularly bothered about whether empirically it can be proven to be the case um, that's neither here nor there because you say well the powers that be the inner secret state or whatever it may be is so efficient that it can hide all that sort of stuff from us and um, you know in the end you get self-fulfilling prophecies and I would say that that's roughly the territory in which people like Shayla, Mashon and others uh, exist in a fairly free, a, a, a world floating free of fact and information. It's, it's a problem here in the States because with, with the events, especially for the events of September 11, 2001, is that uh, we have many competing fringe conspiracy theories. 
uh, I, I, I say they're fringe because there's almost like this layer of conspiracy. You have conspiracy theories questioning the, the uh, malfeasance of government. And then you have fringe conspiracies, as I label them. The, that, uh, for, for example, uh, no planes hitting the, the, the World Trade Center or Pentagon, uh, that there were no hijackers involved, or that the, uh, the World Trade Center came down by a nuclear explosion or whatnot. <laughs> these are the theories that are competing. And it's unfortunate because these are the theories that are permeating inside the truth movement itself. And there's a lot of good people in the truth movement still, but they're few and far between, unfortunately. Um, but even after you broke the story with Shaler, I mean, your reputation is now growing inside the country in itself. And so how did you come across Yosri Fuda? Uh, Yosri and I have been uh, good friends, actually, partly because of Shaler, because uh, Yosri was the uh, London bureau chief for Al Jazeera at the time. And they were also, like everybody else in the world, were keen to report on Shayla's revelations. And so because I was able to put um, Yossri in touch with Shayla, that was where we first came in touch with each other. And from then on, uh, we worked quite closely together. I, I, you know, he was, I, knew, I liked the work that Yossri was doing. Um, I knew what he was doing. I knew what kind of a guy he was. And I knew the lengths he went to to stand up his stories. And so... Um, what happened, if I can say, if I, I, I can move forward a little bit at this point, but I mean, if we can go on to talk about what happened in relation to 9-11, yeah, yeah. Um, just initially, anyway, let's just, let, let's just broach this initially. Um, he came to me one day in um, the spring, late spring, maybe early summer of um, 2000, let me just think when this will be, 2000, Two, and told me that he had some extraordinary information. And um, he eventually revealed to me that he had just come back from Pakistan. I knew he'd gone to Pakistan. He told me he'd just come back from Pakistan. And he told me that he'd done interviews with the two main conspiracists um, involved in and conspiracies in the proper sense, <laughs> um, involved in planning the 9-11 attacks. I was absolutely astonished when he told me that. And he also said that um, the, um, he was actually finding it quite difficult even to get his own organization to believe in the truth of his story. Part of the reason for this being is that although Yostri had filmed everything in that meeting, um, he had not been allowed to walk away with the tapes because they were terrified that there would be something in those tapes which might identify where they were. The two conspirators being um, um, Ramzi bin al-Shib and uh, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, they were extremely cautious. Uh, he'd gone through a whole rigmarole in order to get to see them in, um, I think we all know this now, but this was in um, in Pakistan, um, and he had uh, had swapped cars and been blindfolded and taken to an apartment, and um, and so on and so forth. So um, it had been a very very complex operation to get this stuff, but um, 
he had been in no doubt. I, in fact, I remember him, when he told me the names, the first time he told these names, I knew nothing about these names. I'd never heard these names before. They were new to me as they were new to everybody. And certainly I believe they were almost entirely new to the intelligence services. Um, and certainly they did not know the structure of the, they did not know the structure of the way in which this attack had been planned. They had no knowledge whatsoever about how it had been done. And what happened, of course, in the interviews that Yostri did is that they explained in great detail. They actually had all the flight manuals, um, the training manuals uh, with them, all the maps showing the routes that they had planned to take with the aircraft. Um, they gave him all the names of all the uh, people that had been involved in the four different aircraft, told them who they were, gave them backgrounds on them all, so on and so forth, a massive amount of detailed information. However, even then, um, I mean, when Yossri explained what he had, there was some resistance to running the story. And so we decided the best way to get this story out, we now had an extraordinary story. It was, it was his story primarily. Um, but the question was, how do you get this into the public domain? And so our strategy was to publish this story in the Sunday Times as a front page lead story, plus a big explanation inside. And once that came out, Al Jazeera would then follow it up. They wanted the confidence that we also believed it and we were willing to publish it in order to allow them to publish it. I mean, it was, you think these things are straightforward, but they never are straightforward. And it was, again, it was yet another struggle. And I also had to convince my colleagues at the Sunday Times, I had to bring Yossri in. We had to go through everything um, in great detail and we were able to reconstruct. I mean, eventually bits and pieces. I mean, he got the soundtrack eventually of that um, interview. Um, he got the soundtrack. He was promised the film, uh, but eventually when the emissary came to see him, the, the go-between who was to negotiate him being handed over the film, that guy wanted $100,000 or something ridiculous. And Yossi quite rightly refused to pay it. And so we've never seen that film, but I believe the film exists. And I believe probably it's in the hands of the US intelligence agencies at this moment. I've got little doubt about that. They've never confirmed it, but there are various things that have come out since, which lead me to believe that that film has been recovered. So um, somewhere it remains to be unveiled in public, but somewhere that film is out there and it is kind of the crown jewels in some respects, although I don't think we need it these days to uh, verify what Yossi has said. I mean, um, the remarkable thing, and I, I, you know, I don't want to dictate how you run your interview here, but the remarkable thing about what the interviews that Yossi did is that even after he'd been waterboarded so many times, the story that KSM delivered and what is believed to be absolutely the case absolutely the case, differs in not one jot or iota from what he told Yasri Fuda voluntarily right at the beginning. That story remains the true story. And it was never, it was never contradicted. There was never extra information that came forward that showed that he'd not been given the full story or anything else. Um, so I remain confident that everything that Yasri was told in that little apartment, um, in um, southern Pakistan uh, was the truth. 
And those two guys were actually very, very keen to brag about what they'd done because at that moment, no one knew they had done it. And KSM himself, I think anybody who's followed him and knows anything about him, there is a, there is a big streak of vanity in this guy. There's a very strange streak of vanity that runs right through the middle of him. And, you know, he wanted to do it. You know, he was a freelance operative pretty much at the time when he was uh, recruited by to do this for Al-Qaeda. He never really became a member. He was, for a start, he was a Pakistani. And they didn't want Pakistanis. I mean, you know, that, that organization is an Arab organization. Primar at that time it was anyway. And nobody from outside of the Saudis in particular would ever get anywhere near the heart of it. So KSM was always on the outside. He'd always been on the outside. If you recall, you know, he had planned a whole series of bombings in, else, in other places. He had tried to organize the bombing of um, a, a number of American airlines flying to the Philippines, for example, and, and various other places. Um, he was a kind of a, a very strange fish in some ways um, in that maybe he had his own reasons for doing this. I mean, part of that came out of his family tradition. And, you know, there's a story about that, which we could go into. But um, the reasons why he chose to be like that, hard to explain. And, and Ramzi bin al-Shib, I think, was um, A, he was trusted by Osama uh, bin Laden. But also, he was fascinated, I believe, by this extraordinary intellect and intelligence of KSM, who was a very, and remains, I think, a very, very uh, clever man. Um, I think anybody who's seen any of the stuff that's come out of Guantanamo, that he's both written and broadcast, um, cannot fail to be amazed um, by what this man has done. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to hero worship him, but I think he has uh, proven that he is a formidable person. Yeah, you know, just to, because you answered a couple of questions already with that summary. So let's let's do talk about his family profile, which is coming out of Baluchistan. There's a, there's a lot of questions about whether um, the clan that he was with uh, and his nephew is Ramzi Youssef or Abdul Basikarim. Uh, who's the alleged the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing? Yes. So there's that link. And you talked about the airline plot of 1995, which is the Bajinka plot, which is yes, to, Bajinka, yeah, yeah, but to implement uh, hidden bombs and Timex watches underneath the seats of planes, and I think it was 11 airliners, and That's it was right. a, there was a number of different. Uh, um, uh, sections to that plot. I think uh, it was one that was uh, originally they were going to assassinate uh, Pope John Paul II because right. he was visiting the Philippines, yep. but they couldn't get to him. Um, and, and he was a replacement because they wanted to assassinate U.S. President Bill Clinton, but his security detail was too strong. So they, they chose Pope John Paul II. Then there was a third unit to that particular plot was uh, to um, intentionally crash uh, a commercial airliner into CIA Langley headquarters. Yes. But during the, the, during the interrogation of one of the Bajika plot plotters, Abdul Hakim Arad, Philippines investigator Rodolfo Mendoza had um, basically just given him a hamburger and Murad basically became more friendly to him and told him about an extra additional plot to the plot itself that many people weren't aware about and was that they had sleeper cells inside the United States who were willing to hijack a number of planes. I think it was over like, I think it was about 10 and crashed them into select US targets. And then Mendoza basically 
gave his interrogation reports to the FBI. And he claims that in 1996, they didn't do anything with it. Um, talk us about uh, his family background. Well, yes, and just in relation to what you just said, by the way, I think they were planning to hit the Sears Tower. Yes. And they were planning to hit yeah. various, mm -hmm. various places in LA and, yeah. and some places on the West Coast. That, that yeah. was the plan. Um, KSM uh, Baluchi, um, which in itself is something, uh, Baluchi, Baluchi's Baluchistan is technically, I mean, uh, legalistically, it's part of uh, Pakistan, but it regards itself, and there, is a, there has been for many uh, generations a strong um, um, uh, insurgency against Pakistan by Baluchi nationalists. They don't regard themselves as uh, Pakistanis. And at the same time, they have, and part of the reason for this, if you look at the position of uh, Baluchistan, it's on the southern coast, if you like, of uh, Pakistan, onto the uh, Gulf there, facing the Arab countries. And many, many Baluchis over the years have traveled across there to Oman in particular, and to some of the other states, uh, where they have always been, you know, if we can think of them as, as kind of the NCOs of the Arabs, they, they, have been, they have been the people that did the bidding of their Arab bosses. And that was the role of the Baluchis. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, that's, you know, the Oman Rifles and organized, and, and, which was a British regiment, and uh, others like this were mostly staffed by Baluchis. And um, they, so they were very used to working with Arabs, and they, they understood how to play Arabs, if I can put it that way to you. They had this kind of um, symbiotic relationship, and they could use Arab money, prestige, et cetera, et cetera, to, to maybe do things that they were interested in doing. KSM himself was actually brought up in Kuwait, where I believe his father was a preacher in a um, uh, brotherhood mosque. And a lot of these people don't forget, a lot of the Al-Qaeda early membership came from the brotherhood. And um, as particularly the Egyptians, the, uh, they were, they were um, very, very fundamental to um, the early structure, if you remember, um, obviously Zawahiri and, and people like this are Egyptians, but most of the leading core of people around bin Laden were Egyptians um, and uh, together with a mixture of Saudis. And I think that uh, that brotherhood connection was an important one. And they uh, like what, what happens, what happens at a certain point is that um, they feel that the, the, the brotherhood is not um, the vehicle that's going to sort of uh, liberate Islamic territories. It's not radical enough. And they all begin looking for something else. And what happens with, I think, with KSM and his clan, and that includes Ramzi Yusuf, who is an extraordinary character in his own right, um, a very, very successful uh, um, terrorist operative. Um, um, they then, they begin effectively freelancing, initially looking for things they could do themselves, raising their own funding for these operations. Um, and then I believe that really what happens is they subcontract themselves to Al-Qaeda. Once they go to, once they're finally settled up in Afghanistan, uh, that's the backyard of Baluchistan, of course, and there's a very close connection because the Afghans and the Baluchis share a mutual hatred of the Pakistanis. And so um, there's that element there, which is, which is quite important, I believe. And so, uh, KSM is introduced 
um, to the inner circle. And I, I don't think they necessarily take him that seriously to begin with, but they give him the space to develop his idea. And I think um, because he's, he's got so much practical experience and he's such a clever thinker and he comes up with, he's worked out this idea eventually it's not about smuggling bombs on board. It's about using the bloody plane as a bomb. That's the, that's the great breakthrough that they come up with. And it's so simple and so straightforward. And that requires a completely different kind of operation. It's all you need to, um, all you need to smuggle through is those uh, little um, craft knives. That's pretty much all they had, as far as I can work out, in terms of weaponry, something which they could um, hide extremely simply and then it was a question of taking over the planes. And if you had the idea that you could then control the plane and fly it, you could use it as a massive bomb. And, and that was a, that was a I, I, I don't use the word brilliance in any disrespectful way, knowing full well what it did to people, but that was a brilliant breakthrough in terms of this, this kind of um, um, uh, warfare, if we can call it that, um, terrorism, warfare, whatever you want to call it. It was a brilliant breakthrough, and KSM was the guy that was responsible for that. So he's a very unorthodox character in this, and there's nobody else quite like him in the whole constellation. We can, we can put everybody else into a different category, really. Um, you know, the Arabs are all very, very different uh, to this, and, okay, they're very brave fighters and all of that, um, but the brilliance and the thinking that went into planning this operation was something quite remarkable and clearly i mean it was so far beyond what was expected by the intelligence services that even when they got bits of information like the stuff that you say they were offered they could hardly believe it um you know so that's that's how far ahead they were like two two jumps ahead well you know there was an incident in france uh in 1990 you want to say four where there was a, a potential hijacking of air plants 89 89 where the Algerian Islamic group basically stormed the plane and their intentions were to, which they didn't reveal until later. It was the intention was to crash it into the Eiffel Tower. Uh, but the French uh, uh, guard basically stormed the plane and killed the three people and saved everybody on the plane. Now, I, I always wondered if uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed ever got that idea. But according to Peter Lance, who wrote the book A Thousand Years for Revenge, he basically wrote that uh, after Ramzi Yusuf had been arrested in Pakistan for his role in the 93 World Trade Center bombing, and it was revealed that the Bajika plot was uh, no longer uh, in operation. Uh, one, of, one of the operational uh, people that was involved with Bajika had related to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed the intention of crashing the plane to the CIA headquarters. And that's where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed got the idea to instead of now, when they were looking for bombs on planes, they wouldn't be looking for a person to hijack the plane and crash into the World Trade Center. And what happened was, uh, if we're to believe the allegations made by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Ramzi bin Al-Sheib, is that they put forth the idea to Osama bin Laden in 1999 and said that they wanted to they'll hijack 10 planes. And bin Laden said it would be too much. And so they, he agreed to four. And it involved, um, you know, the people involved. But at first, he said he would think about it and try to get, as you mentioned before, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to swear by act, which is loyalty to Al Qaeda. Yes. He didn't. And Khalid yeah. Sheikh Mohammed 
really did enjoy that freelancing attitude. That's he does mention that. Yeah, he didn't want to have like a boss or a leader to tell him what to do, and he was free to travel to the Philippines, Indonesia, and Qatar, whatnot. He liked that uh, that freedom that allowed him to do that. Was that a, another reason why he reached out to Yoshi Fuda because he considered Yoshi Fuda to be reputable enough? because of his background and because he could have chose anybody else, but he chose yeah. Rosary Fruita. Yeah, you, you, I mean, one thing I want to make very, very clear to you, Adam, and it's a really important point, okay? Um, KSM chose Yosri Fuda because he was the most prominent investigative reporter in the Arab world mm -hmm. with a track record second to none. Now, what is remarkable in a sense about the whole question about uh, understanding what happened on 9-11 is that Yosri Fuda has never been given the full credit um, for breaking the story about uh, what really happened. And that, I believe, is because he's an Arab and because he was working for Al Jazeera. And it was, uh, I, you know, I, 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 well, I can call it racism. I think it's a form of racism, but um, he was never given the full credit. If that had been some white guy from New York or London, believe me, they'd be king of the hill. Um, and, and would still be king of the hill. And, and Yossri has had to fight all along, even to get acknowledgement. I mean, everybody, everybody in the, in the, um, in the um, what I can say, you know, sort of the intelligence world and in the sort of um, FBI and that, they all know the importance of Yossri. They all know that he got it right because they got nothing else from KSM besides what Yossri delivered. Right? They all know it, but the rest of the world has not acknowledged um, and he should have he should have received far more credit for breaking what is I mean to, to interview the two primary conspirators no one else has interviewed anybody let's face it no one else has interviewed anybody of those conspirators not one single person has been interviewed except what Yossri did and that is a phenomenal achievement he put his life in their hands um, anything could have happened and um, a, a remarkable act of bravery in the first instance for a for a, a, a journalist, a working journalist, you know, he was not sympathetic. He was not seen as a sim sympathizer. They trusted him because they believed he would not distort their message. That's why they trusted him. And that is quite an unusual thing in the Arab world, believe me, because there are very few journalists of that caliber operating. And I, I feel that um, I, I want to make the statement very, very strongly to you that um, Yossri Fuda broke the biggest story in the world at that time and it's still one of the greatest stories and it's an amazing story just the story if you read our book uh, uh, you know i'm sure you ha have you can see the risks he took and the way in which he persevered because not only did he do that he then traveled around the states he went to all the, the flying schools he interviewed all the instructors he found he went to the houses where the conspirators had lived in in uh, california in florida in uh, Boston, etc., he went to the hotels. He went every single place and interviewed face to face those people himself. So he did all the groundwork, and he didn't just rely on being told somebody a story. He actually then set out to to stand up everything they had told him to prove that it was true, and um, he he achieved that remarkably. And that's why that, that story has stood the test of time. It's not been faulted. No one has ever been able to criticize it. You can say, well, I don't believe it because it's all, you know, it's the establishment and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, OK, give me a concrete criticism. No, you can't because there's no there's nothing you can fault about the work he did. 
And everybody has come since, Lawrence Wright, every single one of them, they all know Yossery. They all know the debt they owe him. Um, I wish it was more openly acknowledged and uh, hopefully it will be one day. Yeah, listen, when I read the book itself, I was amazed at the fact that here's a guy who actually went and interviewed Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramsey bin al-Sheikh, and no one's ever done it before. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, because I've, I've interviewed authors like Terry McDermott, um, and I'm going to be interviewing Peter Lance in the future, where they, they know who Yoshi Fuder is. And just like you mentioned before, and I'm like, well, why isn't this guy basically like front page news at one point? I mean, the only thing I've, I've heard from Yoshi Fuder, he, there's a actually videos on YouTube uh, that was uploaded by, I think it was by Al Jazeera about the report of 9-11. And there's, I think there's one that's translated to English and the rest is in Arabic and I don't know Arabic. So like, I'm, I'm amazed at the fact that here's a guy who's basically gonna be forgotten in time and he broke the biggest story ever regarding uh, the, the attacks of September 11th. But I wanna I want to touch with you about the risks he took because that was another thing I, I was amazed at. I said, you know, now there was a report of Daniel Pearl from the Wall Street Journal who basically went and trusted an intermediary to get him into contact with uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Instead, he was captured and he was brought to a safe house where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had murdered him. And was this had to have been in the back of Yosri Fuda's mind, considering that he is a reporter and considering they do bring about a good ransom and that the very fact that he could have been killed, was that something that he sure thought about before? Yeah, and I just want to say, incidentally, I was in Pakistan when Daniel Pearl was kidnapped. Oh. And I was also reporting at that time, obviously from Pakistan, on, and I was trying to make some of those connections. And when that happened, I was required by my newspaper, by the, by the Sunday Times, to travel everywhere with a guy with a shotgun standing next to me and sitting in the car next to me, which, as you can imagine, cramped my star substantially. But that was what was required because the threat of being kidnapped was so high. So... Um, I, I know um, just how serious that was, and therefore it puts in context precisely what Yossri did, because he had no guarantees at all, and he simply relied on the fact that um, they would treat him in the way in which they said they would treat him, namely with respect, um, in order to get through that. And I think it was it was a remarkably brave thing for him to do, and it, it, it I think it you know emotionally it was extremely shocking as well for him when he when he came back from that trip and when I first met him and he kind of downloaded to me what had gone on he was still in shock I mean it was it was kind of um you know if you imagine that weight on your shoulders pre-publication that's a huge weight on anybody's shoulders and anything could happen at the point you know you had to consider um were the people that didn't want that story to come out you know, that's a, that's another question. Were there, were there those, you know, and therefore was he at risk in that respect? Um, the, 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 the potential dangers to him were legion. That's what I'm saying. And so it wasn't just that they might kill him when he was there, but somebody else might do something to him because they were unhappy with the fact that he was revealing and, uh, you know, revealing something which held, you know, for example, the Qataris. We know that KSL had a very close relationship with the Qataris. He worked there for them as, um, as a water engineer for some years. And he clearly knew people and he clearly got funding for various things. I won't, I won't, uh, um, uh, I won't say specifically, but he clearly got funding while he was there to help him do some of the operations that he was involved in. And so um, 
it wouldn't necessarily have been in their best interests um, for the story to come out in the way in which it did. So Yossi took a lot of risks, a real lot of risks in my view. When, when he conducted the interview in Karachi, there was a number of questions that he asked that uh, were quite illuminating. One in, one in such was that uh, the targets themselves. And one of the targets originally planned was a nuclear target in which um, Yossi Fouda asked him about the specifics of that and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that they left them out because things would get out of hand for now. Um, I always wondered what that meant because it was such a vague statement. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I wonder, what, it's, it's actually hard to answer that question, but I wonder actually what was going on there was that um, if there had been an attack on a, a nuclear power plant, the event in itself would have overwhelmed anything to do with why it had happened, because it would have been a, a massive international crisis. And, and, you know, the fact that that had been done by a terrorist attack, that's neither here nor there, because you've got to deal with the massive crisis that was there. And that, that would lose sight of what they were trying to do, namely to establish Al-Qaeda as being the focus for um, Islamic um, revenge or whatever you want to call it on the West. And I think that event would have been too big to do that. So they kind of scale back slightly. I mean, don't forget, of course, they were going for the capital. And um, I, I believe that was the fourth target. Um, the two towers, the Pentagon and the Capitol was the was the run of the show. And that would have been dramatic in itself. Um, but once they, if they had all been destroyed in the way in which it was intended, well, that would have just been that. That would have been a lot of rubble. But a nuclear explosion or something like that would have been another thing entirely. And I think I can see the logic of that. I mean, it was not clearly explained, but when he said that, that's the way I took it. We stood there for two days. And at the end, uh, we, you spoke about uh, the items they gave him, uh, a number of items, which were, I think, some CD-ROMs, mini cassettes, including a will made by one of the uh, hijackers themselves, uh, a documentary, what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed called the New Crusades, and a video of the beheading of uh, Daniel Pearl. Yes. Um, and I think Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told him to distribute the tapes to Western news agencies, including the French. Um, so again, what, what became of these items? I think all of those items were, uh, effectively, they were handed over to the um, authorities. And I'm guessing they, handed, they, were, they ended up in the hands mm -hmm. of um, intelligence agencies, um, one thing from another. I think Yostri handed everything over to his employer and uh, they would have gone from Al Jazeera then. And I think we know actually, don't we, that the director of the CIA was in uh, discussions with um, the, the, uh, the Sheikh who uh, owns uh, Al Jazeera. Oh, that, was, yep. that, that, that conversation I think is on the public record or at yeah. least the meeting is on the public record. Mm -hmm. I believe that's when they were told for the first time precisely what had gone on and that um, Yossi had got the story. And I think that was the kind of shock moment, a real big shock moment um, for the, was it, um, what was his name? George, the George, George Tennant. George Tennant, exactly. It was him that got the story secondhand, as it were, not directly from Yossi, but they got it secondhand uh, because Yossi, uh, you know, as a, as a good reporter, told, it, told his uh, news organization precisely what he knew. Yeah, because Tennant basically does remark that he was in shock that uh, a reporter basically was the one who had met 
uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramsey bin Al-Sheikh, yeah, yeah. which put like, a, I think you mentioned this before, it was almost like embarrassment for the agency because it's the CIA. Yeah, Meanwhile, exactly. they've been following, I mean, they've been trying to get to know who Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was from the, uh, the mid-1990s. Now, the only other person that I know of that knew who Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, because he was a complete mystery to most people, was an FBI agent out of New York named Frank Pellegrino. Yes, and he had, Yes, he had chased Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Meanwhile, New York, uh, the counterterrorism unit itself, basically didn't support Pellegrino in this for sense. And he only gave him one um, assistant to go and investigate this because they, they, they said that uh, it was a waste of time. There wasn't much information about him. Nobody really knew about him. And it said that you're basically chasing a ghost, as an example. And Pellegrino actually went to Qatar and they had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed surrounded, but then Qatar basically, <laughs> right, basically they helped him out and yeah. he escaped and whatnot. And I yeah. think, I think I still had the, the New York Times uh, clip it where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was alleged to have traveled uh, to um, Pakistan and Israel in 1996-97 that time frame and then he went to um uh afghanistan and met with bin laden and proposed the idea of the planes operation as it was okay so hey fuda comes back from his trip and he basically returns to london and with him uh the story of a lifetime really no exaggeration yes, the only man to meet and interview khalid sheikh mohammed ramsey bin al-sheep what what was the reaction, initial reaction to the story that he's telling? Well, as I said to you, there's a, there's a degree of skepticism initially, right. because, you know, who is this guy that's got this story and why has he got it? Why haven't we got it? I mean, mm -hmm. there's all of that that goes on. And um, plus the fact that everybody was concentrating on Al Qaeda as an Arab organization. Mm -hmm. And they, why have you got this Baluchi, uh, Pakistani, whatever he is? Why is why is he involved in this? And, you know, nobody could quite understand that. So it took a little while to get those things in order. And the basic point, I think, is that once Yossi was able to explain what he had done and, and explain what he had seen, um, people then caught on very quickly. And the story was an absolute sensation, obviously, when it, when it broke in the Sunday Times. It was a massive sensation. And I think it was two days after um, Al Jazeera ran his report. Um, which uh, took it to the Arab world and the rest of it, and um, and then it then it it did the rounds, as it were. It's I don't believe, as I said to you before, I don't believe a single word of Yossi's story has ever been successfully challenged. Nothing that he wrote. He's a very meticulous man. Nothing he wrote has been challenged successfully. It's entirely as was told to him, without embellishment by the people that did it. Did he, did he come to you or did you go to him about wanting to write a book? We decided on the basis of the, um, the Sunday Times piece, which broke the story, yeah. uh, uh, that the, the best thing to do then would be to put this out in English. And because I'd already been published, I you know, had a number of books to my credit and so on, I knew that well a little bit. Um, and also I had some other stuff to bring to the story. You know, I had interests in in various other people who were operating around um, 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 Al-Qaeda at the time, other Pakistanis, for example. And I was very interested in the Pakistan connection. And so I could bring that to the party, if you like. And I also knew a lot about what had been done, uh, what had been done through London. 
um, you know, I'd written, for example, it was, I broke the story of Bin Laden's sat phone. I was able, it, this is extraordinary. I, nobody realizes this, but you know, uh, well, didn't realize it at the time. Well, after the bombings in uh, East Africa, you know, you had the trial in New York of the, some of the people involved in that. Well, uh, I followed that very closely from the UK and I tracked down a lot of the documentation. And one of the documents that I came across was a list of phone numbers. And it sub subsequently turned out that these were the phone numbers called by the sat phone that had been provided to bin Laden um, for use in the early days of Al-Qaeda when he was trying to set it up from the mid uh, mid 90s from some 96 98 thereabouts that kind of time period and what I then did I reverse engineered all those numbers and I worked out where the numbers who had been called and you know for example I found out that a lot of calls had gone to a phone box on the corner public phone box on the corner of a road in northeast London which was around the corner from where um, uh, Bin Laden's supporters in London had their office and so, you know, we were able to make these extraordinary connections um, and it, a brilliant, a brilliant, uh, yeah, I say it myself, but a brilliant piece of straightforward journalistic investigation. You've got a list. Let's see what we can, how we can um, um, uh, exploit this list and what, what's on the other end of it. And it turned out to be a goldmine, absolute goldmine. So, you know, there's stuff like that that where I was able to bring to the party and, 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 and we worked out a division of labor and, um, we wrote it in a particular way, which encompassed the investigation that Yossri had done both in Pakistan and also in the States and elsewhere. Uh, in fact, also in, um, uh, you know, I, 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 actually later than that, I went to the Philippines and dogged the trail of um, KSM in the Philippines. So, you know, we, we did lots and lots of background uh, really to make sure that we knew what we were talking about and we had as comprehensive as possible um, uh, account of how the conspiracy had been organized. And if you recall, I mean, they gave him, KSM and uh, Ramsey gave um, Yossri details of the codes they'd used in their phone conversations, transatlantic phones conversations, where they talked about a, two sticks. Um, yes. Do you remember this? Yes. Uh, being the towers. Yes. Right. And, you know, they had this whole little sort of um, secret vocabulary, which they used for um open source phone conversations which clearly fooled everybody because nobody cracked it when you see it when you know afterwards what they're talking about it, it all makes perfect sense but that kind of detail that they gave him uh was part of what convinced me that this was a genuine story you know because this was too complex to make up and it all made perfect sense and they gave time date and place for everything so he, we were able then to um, as much as we possibly could back up that factual material um with our own research and and stand up as much as we possibly could and um develop a a coherent and comprehensive narrative e i think the call was two sticks a dash and a cake correct that's, like, that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> exactly when you think that. about it, it's like very simple it's like but what you're looking at is like what the hell is this yeah um yeah, yeah. Inter interestingly enough you brought up about the satellite phone of bin laden and this is something that I took great care to detail, and I've done videos and even done a podcast about the NSA 
uh, intercepting Bin Laden's satellite phones in the mid 90s, uh, when he was uh, living in the Sudan, uh, for example, uh, the NSA had begun uh, wiretapping or an, listening to the encrypted phone calls of made on that phone. And one such number kept coming up, and it was a number that was tracked to uh, a house located in the capital of Yemen, it's Asana. And this house later would be known to be owned by a person by the name of Ahmed al Hada, who was an associate of bin Laden from the Afghan Soviet days. And this later became the Al-Qaeda communications hub uh, yes. in the mid-90s. And, yes. and frequent, frequently, uh, a visitor would come to the house. And it, and it was, uh, ironically, it would be Khalid al-Midar, who basically was one of the hijackers of American yeah. Airlines Flight 77 because he married the daughter of the, the, uh, daughter of the, house. Of the house, right? Hoda yeah. al-Hada. Yeah. Um, and so the NSA began in, uh, wiretapping the phone calls of that house and from 1996 to 2001, and it just, you know, it begs the question of what they were listening to, uh, you know, all throughout those five years before the attacks. And, you know, I, I, I actually messaged uh, Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, um, and I, I knew this wouldn't be, you know, it'd be a pipe dream, but I figured I'd ask, I said, what would it be possible to file a freedom of information request to transcripts of those phone calls? And he said that, uh, good luck. He goes, they, you know, they're protect under executive order. And he gave me the number, I forgot the number. And he says, uh, but we still have a trial, you know, in Guantanamo that, you know, it still hasn't happened. And he says that uh, it's a 25 year wait. So I figured if, you know, if I'm living that, you know, long enough, I could probably file and see what they were listening to if, you know, if that's even possible. Uh, and all the stuff that they uh, were talking about in those phones, I can only imagine. But yeah, all right. So two weeks after the meeting, Ramzi bin Alshib is actually located and captured in Karachi. And it was nearby the location of where he met with Fuda. Now, was Fuda initially blamed for the capture? Because yes, he was. was he, he was. And, and, and that was very serious because um, it was suggested that he was a traitor and that he'd uh, allowed himself to be tracked. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got him. Yossri uh, has always denied that, and I, I, for, for a matter of record, I believe that, okay? Whether he was tracked without him knowing is another matter. And who's to say? I don't know. But undoubtedly, very rapidly after he did the interview, they were on to Ramsey. Um, KSM had gone off by then, um, and he was living up country with uh, his friendly Pakistan army officer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, which is another question altogether. And, you know, the same relationship possibly as uh, um, Osama had with the uh, Pakistan military right. in which they, they kept these people in their back pockets for the day where they would be useful. And that's precisely how they, they've operated the whole way through. Um, so I don't have any doubt about that. But yeah, Yossi was undoubtedly blamed. And I was worried for a time that somebody would come after him. Um, uh, to kill him really you know for um for, for that for that happening but um not much was said after that because um i think anybody who knows lot yostri knows that um he would have i mean there was a 20 million dollar reward i yes, believe yes yostri's uh, yeah. never collected that yeah. um you know so um presumably had he been <laughs> he would have been quite within his rights to go up and claim it sure. um you know
so I don't believe that uh, he in any way collaborated with any tracking, although I think it's entirely possible that he may have been tracked by somebody or, or by uh, equipment that he was not aware of. And then shortly thereafter, on March 2nd, 2003, finally, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is captured by the ISI and the CIA's uh, Special Activities Division without much fanfare. With Ramzi Yusuf, there was a shootout, but with Khalid yeah, Sheikh yeah, Mohammed, yeah. you know, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he basically was captured in a house he was staying in and whatnot. But it was a informant who basically called about where the whereabouts was. Yes. Um, so now the masterminds are captured. Mustafa Hasnawi, Amara Baluchi, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed al Sheikh. Uh, ironically enough, all these captures happened in Pakistan, no less. So there is some uh, evidence to show that the ISI basically were either hiding these people out, just like they did with Ramzi Youssef, and just like they did with bin Laden, and just like they did with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Ramzi al Sheikh. They're all captured, and they're all subsequently tortured brutally. Um, I believe Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's waterboarded 183 times. Something and like that. Ramsey yeah. bin Al-Shiv, I think he's 71 or 82 times. They, I mean, the torture sessions, even with the lower ranking Al-Qaeda operatives like Abu Zubaydah, um, these people are just brutally tortured. Now, whatever they confess to is now contested in a court because their, their lawyers are basically chomping at the bit to basically go about with the trial saying that, hey, listen, you know, these guys confessed on torture and by law here in especially United States, um, any information that's uh, made under duress is uh, not uh, valid. Is that the reason why you think the trial has not started? I, I do. And I think that um, I don't think a trial will ever take place. I honestly don't think a trial can ever take place because how can you justify, how can America justify uh, the, the only evidence they have is what they've got from him, from torture. Mm -hmm. Other than that, the only other evidence they have is what Yossri produced. That's right. That's now, Yossri has been approached by the FBI. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know that. Uh, I, I know that, of course, I, I know that. Um, uh, he's been approached by them. And obviously, he's unlikely ever to be agreeable to testify at a trial of somebody who's been tortured. Because how could, you, how could any working journalist go into a court case in those circumstances. So I don't see what they can put in front of a jury, or even if there's no jury, I mean, uh, whether it's a bunch of army colonels or whatever, I don't see they can put anything in front of them that has any credibility in terms of due process. And this is the most shocking mistake and most stupid mistake. I would personally imprison the people that did that. They are criminals in my view. It's shocking that they did it. It's shocking that it was allowed because it destroyed the ability to have a decent uh, outcome of this whole business. They, undoubtedly, what they did is criminal. It's disgusting, and they should be punished for that. And I, I don't agree with a death sentence, but they should spend the rest of their life, as undoubtedly they will, uh, incarcerated. Um, but we are all being denied the right to hear a free and open trial. And that is a crime in itself, that we've been denied that right, because we should all be able to hear them say what they did and to judge them on it in the full glare of um, publicity. And that's not going to be possible, in my view. Um, we're down to how many in Guantanamo now? 25 or thereabouts, isn't it? I think, of which around about five or so are regarded as the, as the, as the, as the big cheeses. Um, 
I don't see any of those ever successfully competing their, their trials. I've asked this question to a number of my guests on the show, and one of them uh, was um, Ken Williams, who wrote, he's an FBI agent out of Arizona. He wrote what was called, infamously called the Phoenix Memo, which oh, yes. was warning about people flying in flight schools in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yes, yes, and, yes. And um, I asked him that question. He basically said that he attended uh, the initial uh, court hearings of the Guantanamo Five and he basically said, I asked him that question, he basically said no, and this is last year. And he said, I gave, he gave me the reason why. He said that he doesn't think that because of the torture sessions that the case will just fall apart. And what will happen is that the United States is going to make a deal. Just two weeks ago, uh, there's a story that's brokered now. The United States is basically in talks, doing a deal with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's lawyers um, about taking the death penalty off the table if they plead guilty to the crimes of 9-11. If that happens now, if this happens, the trial will no longer go forward. And whatever information and evidence that they had or didn't have now is not to the public. And also the biggest point, which you just raised, is that we'll never hear from the mouths of these people in what we should desperately want to hear. And we, we should hear it. We should hear it from them. And I think you similarly answered my next question, which is what I was going to build up to, was that with the video, that video, that video that Yoshi put to take would not that that would be the nail in the coffin, wouldn't it be? Totally would, and I I I, re, I remain hopeful that somehow under some circumstances that will come out. I think I, I don't see why that should be hidden from humanity for the rest of right. uh, whatever. It ought to come out, and um, that is an extremely important artifact, if I can put it that way, that should be in the public domain. There's no grounds now for keeping that secret. And um, it, it won't jeopardize the trial or anything else. And actually, it actually belongs to Yasri Fuda. Right, <laughs> legally, right. in my view, it legally belongs to him. He's been denied access to something which was um, uh, not provided to him, although it was promised that it would be, not by the Americans or anybody else, but by KSM and Ramsey themselves. Sure. So they acknowledge he set up the cameras. Um, he supervised the, the rolling of those cameras. They then removed the cameras and promised him that they would give him an edited version back, which they never did. But I think those things, that's what was on KSM when he was arrested. When, that's when what you, I, right. That's so, what I believe. I believe that they were those films were with him when he was arrested. Oh, okay. It, they, were, oh, they were with him when he was arrested. It, I, I, I think that's, that's the closest I've got to it. Right. I feel that that's the case. I've seen some suggestion of that. But um, it was either there or it would have been in Karachi, one place or the other. Right, because according to the book, he basically wanted to keep the videos to edit out the faces. Yes, that's right. right that's right. So, yeah. and I've always, you know, when I read that book, it was monumental because I was like, my God, uh, this should be like, I mean, what, well, I'll ask you the question. The book is published. What was the reception? Well, it was, a, it was a very strong reception. I mean, it's been translated into seven languages. It's been published in many, many countries. Um, always I felt it wasn't it, it we didn't get the you know we didn't get the um three the five-star treatment yeah because mm -hmm. it was Yossi's name mm -hmm. and I feel there was a tremendous as I said to you a tremendous resistance mm -hmm. to giving the full credit to an Arab journalist um you know it's an extraordinary irony isn't it that it would be an Arab that right. broke the story of what really happened at 9-11 and nobody really wanted to admit that and allow that to sort of um come out and hit you in the face 
So I would say it was, we were off the notch in, in terms of that. Um, you know, there would, I think in other circumstances, the, somebody would have optioned it for a film, you know, because it's such an extraordinary story, Yossery's, yeah. Yossery's Time. That's, that's a, a classic movie. I've seen much weaker films made sure. on the exploits of journalists, I can tell you. Um, that's a real story, real danger, real jeopardy, uh, a real big story at the bottom of it, et cetera, et cetera. So why didn't that happen? I don't know. Has Yosri ever been contacted afterwards by anyone from Al-Qaeda itself since this happened? Well, he was contacted by various people um, who were due to deliver the edited tapes to him. But as I said to you, they then whether they were then sort of freelancing and operating on their own terms, but they began asking for big sums of money, um, which Yostri had always made clear he would never pay a penny for anything. Right, right. Um, and, and so he refused to deal with them. And, and quite rightly, he would have been tainted if he'd done that anyway. So that, that, there were those contacts which went on for a while. I mean, six months or so, I think, afterwards. Oh, okay. um, uh, but then after that, it went quiet. And um, very little after that. What, what was his reaction to the death uh, of bin Laden? Actually, I'm not really, I can't really answer that question. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, funnily enough, it, it, was a, it was a surprising thing for me because I had been in that town just less than a year before uh, he was killed. And then I began to wonder about whether I might be in trouble because somebody would say, what the was he doing that? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it just so happens uh, that he's killed and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is captured with Yossi Fuda interviewing him. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, so I, I think, uh, you know, Yossi had no, no sympathy for um, bin Laden. That kind of, those kind of patrician Saudis, that particular kind of people, you know, they're not, they're not the warmest people in the world. They're not easy to relate to, I don't think. I don't want to overgeneralize. But I don't think he felt that this was a sympathetic person. You know, um, I think probably he believed, like a number of people, that he was easily manipulated by the Egyptians. It was the Egyptians who were the real guts of Al-Qaeda. They were the real militants. They had fought years and years against uh, Sadat and all the rest of them tried to kill Sadat, of course. And they had fought very, very hard. Um, and they had fought in um, Bosnia in particular, and that was an extremely, that was, I think, that's, that was the kind of, that was the kitchen where everything was heated up and, and warmed up and created. And, and they went from there, um, then to Sudan, and then finally to Afghanistan. But it was Bosnia, I think, that was the fundamental place for them, where they realized there was a kind of, a, there was a strategy based on um, fighting groups that could, fundamentally change the complexion of the Middle East in particular. You know, the, I, I write about this sometimes. I do certain videos about how the influence of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was uh, an organization based out of Cairo, Egypt, that was led by uh, two individuals, uh, Muhammad Ibn al-Faraj and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And a, uh, the ideology of bin Laden changed because when al-Qaeda was created, it, it wasn't an international terrorist organizations, so to speak, they were treating, they were training guerrilla tactics to Arab Mujahideen fighting against 
the communists in Afghanistan. Yes. And it wasn't until the implementation of the Egyptians like Abu Hafs al-Masri and the Ayman al-Swahiri and Abu Ubaid al-Banshiri and all these hardline uh, militants that came from Egypt to, uh, to the uh, Sudanese group, al-Qaeda group. And then you started, you know, implement, you started noticing a change of more hardline militancy. And then in 1996, when bin Laden then relocated back to Afghanistan, then you noticed the, the first fatwa against the United States. Uh, and then in 1998, then, the, you know, we started seeing the, the first- attacks in West Africa. That's right, indeed. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, East Africa embassy bombings in Tanzania yeah. and, yeah. and Kenya. And then the second fatwa, which was the most important, the attacks on civilians anywhere you could find them. Um, if- yeah, these things, these things grow out of the influence. Uh, Al-Masri in particular, I think, was a very, very important figure, just as important as Zawahiri himself, mm-hmm. I think. And um, these people deeply impressed bin Laden, and they, fought, they, they, they helped him formulate this kind of strategy of Al-Qaeda as an international outward-looking organization that was going to fundamentally change the world. And that was a massive jump. It was a massive jump from what they had done, as it were, in... They'd now had the experience of fighting in uh, Afghanistan, of course, and claiming the victory in Bosnia, where they had a certain amount of success. They weren't entirely successful, but they did a lot. And then um, in, back into Afghanistan and so forth, they had a lot of experience under their belts by this point. And they were um, no shortage of money, no shortage of recruits. They could do anything they want. And in a sense, you know, KSM's appearance at that moment and the offer from him, I've, I can do this big thing for you that'll really put you on the map. Suddenly, that was the right moment, the right man, the right place. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and for those who are wondering, like, why is Bin Laden attacking the United States? Why does Al-Qaeda continue to attack the United States? And Bin Laden has given interviews to uh, Peter Bergen of CNN yeah. and to um, John Miller of ABC News. He basically has, you know, telling us that, you know, it's our foreign policy with Saudi Arabia and Israel, uh, the first Gulf War through the oil for food program, which 500,000 people were killed. And basically what he wanted to do was draw the United States into a, a, a similar version of what the Soviets went through in Afghanistan, to draw them into a long out war, because they knew that Al-Qaeda could not beat the U.S. military. But what he yes. could do was instigate them. And this is yeah. coming from his son. I think his son is... Hamza bin Laden, one of the uh, living sons. And he basically, I could, I, I think it's Hamza bin Laden. I, I, I could be wrong about the name. Anyway, he, he basically told um, somebody from ABC News that when he bombed the East Africa uh, uh, embassies, he thought that the United States would over-exaggerate and extend into Afghanistan. And they didn't. And he complimented Clinton, saying that he wasn't as foolish and foolhardy. And then he decided if they, we, we can't uh, attack the United States, we'll, we'll go to their country and attack directly. them inside. Yeah. Right, directly. And that's yeah. when the planes operation began. And of course, you know, Bush basically gave him what he wanted and gave him more. Not yeah. only did we invade Afghanistan, but we gave him an added bonus. We invaded Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. And of course, yeah, that, that, that was, the, sadly, I mean, that was the most shameful and shocking outcome. Mm of all of this is that and you know i mean the interesting question here is the extent to which i mean to what extent was the u.s intelligence industry if you like um why do they think that attacking iraq would solve the question of al-qaeda 
Mm-hmm. How many of them really believe that that was the case? I mean, I, to me, it seemed quite a lot of them did. But, I, you know, I can tell you the extent. I mean, I was, I pride myself in knowing what I'm talking about. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and um, in, in various places, and I, I, I've studied these things. I, rem- I remember not long after the Americans invaded Iraq, hearing very senior people express surprise that there were Shias in Iraq, right? <laughs> There was there was shock and consternation, and and they didn't realize what uh, what do you mean fifty percent of the population is, and those are the guys that benefited from uh, Saddam Hussein being done in. Therefore, you know the Sunnis had no leadership whatsoever. The only people that were a, a kind of functioning because they had Iran close by were the Shias. Now that level of ignorance played into. Um, the debacle that Iraq became eventually. And I, I, I you know, I, I, I still think about this, you know, just to what extent people really believed and were misled so much that they thought that, you know, you remember all this stuff about um, Mohammed Atta being in Czechoslovakia and money being handed over from various, uh, from Saddam Hussein. It was all garbage. It was a total garbage. I spent months and months investigating all these stories from the Sunday Times and realized every time you got anywhere near anything, it crumbled. And that, you know, there was no connection. There was no, um, you know, the whole story about uranium. Do you remember all that yellow cake uranium and everything else and all of these kind of, uh, all the stuff about weapons of mass destruction. But primarily the first thing was, the first thing is we're going to attack Iraq because they back Al Qaeda and they're sort of, uh, they're, they're baddies in that respect. That was such foolishness. And anybody who knew anything about these things knew that. We all knew We all knew that. Anybody who was in the know knew this was completely stupid and foolish. But, um, you know, I, how you explain how these massive misconceptions take place is another matter altogether. I think that's a, a very interesting subject. Yeah, it's a, it's a real, I mean, the whole Iraq issue was a crime in itself, basically. I mean, if the United States was honest and they were co-signers of, say, the the uh, Rome statutes, for example, we would be held under liable for crimes against humanity. Indeed. Uh, ba- just based on Iraq alone. Yeah. Uh, and, but it didn't end there because under the Obama administration, uh, we saw the extension into Libya and then Syria, yes. of course, yes. with the CIA operation, Timber Sycamore, where we're funding uh, jihadists in Syria yes. to overthrow Assad. And it just seems like the United States made things worse in the Middle East overall. Yeah, I, I would say so. There's some terrible, terrible mistakes. And I, I, it's hard to understand because it's not as if they benefited. Right. You know, right. You know sometimes you can, you, can, you can do things because you, you're doing it for pure material gain of some kind. You know, but, but there was none of that. Actually, this debilitated America to some degree. Uh, you know, the, the cost in men and material, if I can put it that way, uh, um, was so huge and substantial and shameful, really. But there's a lot, you know, not to sound too conspiratorial, but I mean, it's, there's, there's some hint of truth to this, too, is that the United States are basically persuaded by lobbyists such as the Gulf lobby and the Israeli lobby to do like the, the biddings of certain people that want to see their preconceived enemies destroyed in the region. And then you, of course, you got the Pentagon, the issue of uh, wanting to continue war to keep going. I mean, we're seeing that in Ukraine with Russia in itself. That's a mess, too, in itself. It just seems that all of these uh, conflicts basically are at, come at the disposal of the of the, the, the people themselves. And most people don't want war. 
No, I think that's entirely true. That's a, a much bigger discussion, I guess. Um, right. Uh, you, um, and I think it's probably beyond this discussion, but it's it's a nonetheless a fascinating discussion. Um, but I I'm I was very struck by initially, I mean, the lack of knowledge, the general simple lack of basic facts, um, because if you don't understand that half the Iraqi population is the same religion and co-religionists of the people next door in Iran who are your deadly enemies and you've just put them in power. And that's, you know, I mean, this is just like dumb, you know, and, 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 and yeah, I don't believe this was a, I don't think this was done for a reason, a logical reason, it's done because of lack of knowledge. That's the point here. It's lack of knowledge, it's stupidity, ignorance. It's from the, the fact that policymakers, whoever they may be, the military guys or State Department or whoever, are not aware of how things actually work on the ground. And um, this, I would rather believe that than believe that this is a conspiracy. Let me put it that way to you. Right, and you know what? There's a lot of truth to that because I'll, I'll give you an example because the CIA basically were tasked to find weapons of mass destruction relating to Al-Qaeda and the Baathist army and they could not. Yeah. And uh, basically what happened was, was they, they facilitated evidence. I think they captured an uh, individual by the name of Ibn Sheikh Al-Libi. And yes. they tortured him. And he basically told them that, yes, you know, there was chemical and biological weapons between yeah. Al-Qaeda and Iraq. And then Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell brought that to light in the uh, United Nations Security Council. And that's infamously why we went to a uh, war with Iraq. And when they went to interview Al-Libi later on, when the war's right in the middle of being... Um, when it started, he said, well, why did you lie to us? He goes, I only told you to stop the torture. Well, <laughs> so yes. like, and then, you know, three months later, they found him hanging in a cell in, I think, Egypt. So yeah. I'm like, you know, it, it, you know, the truth comes out sooner or later about all the lies that these people basically uh, partook, especially with Iraq in itself. And I'm, I, I'm not really usually surprised, but I'm aghast that neoconservatives like Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas Fife and all these people who probably never visited uh, Iraq ever before can basically say what to do and how to conduct a war on a country like that and don't, don't even know the culture itself. I mean, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, they basically, uh, Paul L. Pearl Bremer, who's an extension of the State Department, was in charge of the Iraqi Provisional Orders 1 and 2, which basically disolluted the army and the yes. law enforcement and the, the country went into anarchy, basically. And well, they immediately went and joined the jihadist organizations with right, their weapons. Right. They basically, that's what they joined, right? Yeah. I mean, they yeah. basically, the jihadists took advantage of the situation and yeah. it created a vacuum. And of course, what did we see? The Islamic State of Iraq, which that was, was created by Iraq. That was how ISIS yeah. was created. Yeah. That's From right. the prison camps. The, the camps that right. were set up in the south of Iraq right. after the invasion, yeah. Right, and that's out under Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who's basically a Jordanian prisoner who uh, built a camp in Iraq, and, you know, just like that, I mean, overnight. Yeah, you know, yeah he didn't have to train anybody because they were all highly experienced uh, yes. army officers right. that had fought, spent years fighting the Iranians on a, on a, like a First World War battlefield. That's they right. knew everything about tactics and weaponry and everything else. So they didn't have to train anybody. They were they were uh, they were falling over each other. There were so many people that wanted to join them. Oh, it's um, a yeah, it's a shock yeah. that the United States al allowed for this to, to happen and then not when the anarchies, you know, when the army and law enforcement uh, were dissoluted, the U.S. military had no answer for it. And you mm. wonder, like, what was the what was the plan anyway? Lo the long term plan? Maybe there wasn't any. Mm. And basically, it would fit right into your statement about the ignorance and 
arrogance of uh, American foreign policy in this country. Nick, what, what projects are you currently working on now? Uh, well, I said to you, I, I'm primarily writing about um, Central Asia mm -hmm. and um, what I call the Great Step. Um, and uh, I've just written a history of the Great Step. Um, and that's I'm, go, I'm off to Kazakhstan next week because they've, they've just translated into Kazakh oh. and um, it's being published there. And so I'm very proud of that because, um, you know, nomad societies don't generally have a written history. And what they've got, most of them, even the Mongols, the Kazakhs and all these people, their history has been given to them by the Russians. So I provided a, uh, an alternative discourse to their history. Yeah. And I think they really appreciate that. And that's why it's been taken up so well there. And, um, you know, this is a national event. It'll be on TV news and everything else. Um, so I'm very proud of that. And so I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of work on that now. I'm not, I'm not doing so much of the investigations that I've done most of my life because, um, well, hey, you know, I, I want to do what I want to do, do primarily. And, you know, I've always, I have a great love for Central Asia. You know, I, I travel there in remote places on horseback every year normally. Uh, excluding the COVID years, I, I go on expeditions, um, just six or eight people um, for weeks at a time into places, untracked places, really. And that's what I enjoy doing. And um, I realize there's a history of this and I've tried to explore that as well. So um, what comes out after that, who knows? But as long as I can keep on sitting on a horse, um, I will continue <laughs> doing those kind of uh, those kind of travels um, because they give me huge, huge pleasure. And, you know, um, I've always found actually, you know, all the work I've done throughout my career, <clears throat> strangely enough, um, with BCCI, I was working on BCCI from at least nine months before the, the bank collapsed. Nobody knew it was going to collapse. I didn't know it was going to collapse. But I had started to hear all sorts of strange stories about that bank, and I began to work on it. And when it did collapse, I was like streets ahead of everybody. I knew everything about it. I knew who all the officials were. I knew about the legal cases in Miami that they'd been involved in. And it, nobody, the Bank of England regulators here knew nothing about any of this. And um, I, I've always worked on stories without a commission or anything else, you know, stuff that I've worked on. And then it's kind of, it's found its place. And I, this is the way in which I've worked through most of my life. Um, and it, it works well for me. I, I'm good at spotting certain anomalies and things and accumulating. I'm a, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a classical, classic researcher in that sense. I accumulate stuff, I order it, I get it very straight in my mind. And, um, and then if I'm lucky, I get a break. And, I, you know, as long as you can seize the moment, that works really well. So that's, the kind of technique I've always used, and it stood me in good stead. Um, when I started traveling to Central Asia, it was simply to fulfill my desire to travel in remote places. I've now had four books or five books out of that in the last two years. Um, and, and more and more to come, I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, but what comes out after that, I don't know. It'll be something else that takes my fancy and, 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 and draws me in that direction. And you you said you you still keep in contact with Yoshi Fudo. Has, has yeah, very closely. I was on. I was I was with him. I was you know I, I meet him regularly and um, I, I talk to him and uh, we we were speaking yesterday. Yeah. And he uh, is he working on any projects at all? Is he? No, he's working? not. No, he's and he's kind of um, um, 
um, resistant to doing so. I think he feels like he's had a really, um, a really tough time over all this. It's been yeah. tough on him as well, actually, um, because you know when you're in that position and when you know what you've done and everything else, there's a lot. There's a lot. It's a, a big load to carry with you. So I think yeah. he feels he feels quite a lot of that, and uh, I understand that entirely. Well. Uh... I know it may not mean much for me, but, um, you know, I, I have a big thank you between you and Yosri and what you've done uh, writing this book. And um, it's a real pleasure um, to basically understand uh, what you guys had went through uh, regarding this situation, regarding this experience. And Yosri Fuda himself, uh, you know, I'm indebted to him. And, I, I you know, I, I thank him very much. And I thank you for basically writing the book and basically making it available for people to, um, to basically show uh, here, we have two of the uh, biggest minds regarding the, the worst terrorist attack in the United States history. And we would not have known this had we had not that book, uh, had we do. not had that interview, um, we, we would leave it up to the CI to tell us the story and they're, they're basically not telling us anything. Yeah, so indeed. I thank you very much. Well, I would urge you in response, Adam, to continue to press for Yossri's film, right? They've got no reason to hold that. And someone has got it. I, I am 100% sure of that. And you never know, you may be the guy that, that breaks that one. And uh, good luck to you if you do. But um, I, I, that's to me is one of the big, uh, one of the big sort of legacy stories remaining from 9-11, which, because whenever it comes out, if that comes out, that will be sensational. It will be totally sensational to see those two guys in their pomp talking about what they did. That will be amazing. And we all deserve to be able to see that. Um, I think it will put everything in its place. Um, and actually, you know, if, the, if the, um, the, the agencies in the States were a bit smarter, they would realize that themselves. Nick Fielding, co-author of Masterminds of Terror. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much indeed, Adam.